Welcome back to Give Me Some Truth, the podcast that presents new research and discoveries that help to unravel fact from fiction in the history of the Beatles. I am your host, Obadiah Jones. I decided to split this episode into two parts because it covers quite a lot of information and was running well over an hour. This first part will cover Yoko's life up until she met John, and the second part will pick up from there. On the 20th of March, 1969, John Lennon married avant-garde Japanese artist Yoko Ono in Gibraltar near Spain. The couple, dressed all in white, pledged their vows to a marriage that would last just over a decade until John's death. Five days after their wedding, John and Yoko invited the world's press into room 902 at the Amsterdam Hilton to share in their honeymoon, an event they called a bed-in to promote world peace. This is how John and Yoko want us to remember them. Two peace crusaders, deep in love, cocooned together against the world. John and Yoko had first appeared in public together at the launch of Apple Tailoring on the 22nd of May the previous year, and by the 1st of July, John was publicly declaring his love for her. Never mind the fact that he and Yoko were both still married to their former partners, each with a young child. The public reaction at the time to Yoko's sudden ubiquitous presence in John's life was mixed, ranging from amusement and perplexation to outright hostility. Ever since, Yoko, arguably the most prominent female in the Beatles story, has also been one of the most divisive. As historian Erin Torkelson Weber describes in her book The Beatles and the Historians, Yoko's role in Beatles history has either been painted as a domineering egoist who pursued Lennon for his wealth and fame, manipulated him into a relationship, and ultimately destroyed the Beatles with her unreasonable expectations, or as the daring artist who spurred him to discover his true purpose and his political and artistic freedom outside the band's restrictive and commercial boundaries. In both instances, Yoko is portrayed as a caricature, a one-dimensional shadow or ally to our hero, John Lennon. But as with most aspects of the Beatles story, the truth is more complex and nuanced. Until I spent more time understanding who Yoko was and what she had done before she met John, I too did not appreciate the interesting, intelligent, provocative woman that is Yoko Ono. Yoko, who recently celebrated her 90th birthday, has always been a bit of a mystery to me, an enigma. In this episode, I want to explore Yoko's life and work before and leading up to her union with John. I hope to show that Yoko was an accomplished, pioneering artist in her own right before she and John became a couple, and that their collaborations together were almost entirely an extension or an expansion of the work she had already begun without John. To help me shed light on this mystifying missus, I am joined by Madeline Beccaro, author of In Your Mind, The Infinite Universe of Yoko Ono. Madeline has created a rich collection of information about Yoko's life, work, and philosophy, including never-before-published quotations that could also have been titled The Tao of Yoko or The Gospel According to Yoko Ono. Her actual book title, however, is way better. You can find reviews and more information about the book at inyourmindbook.com and you can order your copy from conceptualbooks.com.
So I wanted to start with your personal connection to Yoko, and uh, what's your first memory of of her, and how did how did you initially find out about her? Because I didn't realize until I'd read your book that you you actually experienced a lot of these events in, as they were happening. Yes. Well, I was ten years old when I first saw a photo of her in a, in Time magazine. It was 1968, early 1968. And she was sitting, standing in front of one of her film frames from Bottoms, which is the naked behinds. And I just thought it was so cool that she made a film like that. And she, she seemed very young in the picture. And she just had this beautiful look about her, a sly look in her eye, pretty much. And I just saved the picture. And I just started saving everything I could find about her, um, which was, you know, back then there was no internet. So I just have to do it from magazines. And then, lo and behold, she's with John Lennon eventually in '68, and that that was it. Then I just used to gravitate towards everything they ever did, you know, as it happened, you know, the bed ins and all the live, you know, radio audio from that. And then I collected every newspaper, magazine I recorded off the radio on cassettes. And that's how I compiled the book. I used my archive of materials that was luckily in chronological order the way I kept it. And um, it was just, I just lived through it all. And I kind of had a sense and I tried to convey the turbulent 60s and the the crazy 70s and all the history that was jam-packed in there, which they kind of exemplified as they went through life and they tried to just promote peace through this turbulent storm and i just love their positivity and the the responsibility they felt as celebrities to, to tell the truth so that's how i was attracted and what about the records were you, were you oh the records as well definitely the first one give peace a chance and even the live piece in toronto that concert before all that and the Lyceum show, which came out later. Yeah, I got every album as it came out. I got Two Virgins, brought it to school. Uh, I brought the white albums to school, and people tried to peel off the white cover saying, uh, John and Yoko are naked. And you're like, no, 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 that's Two Virgins. But yeah, I had them as they came out. So your parents must have been quite progressive to a, I mean, you, you were quite young when that when that came well, out. No, no, they were very strict and straight. And that's another reason I was drawn to John and Yoko. They were kind of humorous and kooky. And they were adults to me anyway, you know, they were 10, 12 years older than me. Yoko was much older. And uh, I just appreciated it. My, my, my parents thought it was all nuts. And then you your first concert was you, you actually saw them at Madison Square Garden, right? Yeah, I was 14. And uh, they did that one-to-one -one concert, and I, when I finally heard about it, it was in the New York Times, this tiny little ad. My aunt got the New York Times, thank God, and um, I, the the evening show was already sold out, but they added a matinee, and that's how I got the tickets and went with my school friends. So it was amazing to see them both live. Tell me a little bit about your experience. So it was... Um, they were alternating songs and it was at the time sometime in new new york city had come out in 72 and you know he was doing some beatles songs he's had come together and you know to me at that time he was just john by then because he was doing all the his own stuff but when he started singing come together that beetle voice came out it was just like, so amazing 
Um, yeah, and he did Mother from the, the solo album. They did Instant Karma. They did Give Me a Chance at the at the evening show. Uh, Yoko did her songs from Sometime in New York City, which was Born in a Prison and Sisters of Sisters. And she, it was just amazing. How close to the stage were you? We, we had horrible seats, but um, the MC Geraldo Rivera, he, I guess there were some empty seats down front, and he's like, everybody just, you know, come down. And we ran in the orchestra pretty much almost down front. You had been writing a lot about her on your website. Right. Over the years. Even before that, you know, when I'd gone to the concerts, I wrote just for my own, you know, little diaries, notebooks. And I just, oh, they did this song. And I, you know, or I would write um, a review of the concerts later on for publications. Or I'd write about a film or an event. So that's how it evolved. I just had all these writings and one day somebody gave me software and said, put this all together and see what you have. I didn't know how to take separate word documents and put, but I was able to put them in folders and arrange them and organize them. And it took me two years to organize it all and the ad, the flesh it out. And that's the only way it could have been done. You can't start day one and say, I'm going to write the first page of Yoko Ono's life story and do all the research. Like, forget it. And it's not going to have a human element to it. It's not going to relate because, I, you know, I spent a lot of time with her. I had a lot of insights um, and it's all in there. That's what I wanted. I want. I had to make it undeniable because I didn't want to write this fairy tale and, and have people go, well, this isn't true. I put the good and the bad in there. You know, even on Double Fantasy, they put, I'm losing you and I'm moving on. It wasn't, they didn't portray a, a wonderful, perfect marriage. And there should be no question. I shouldn't even have to write a book, but I, I wanted to because she she's so wonderful. She really deserves the true story. Yoko was born in Tokyo on the 18th of February, 1933, into one of the wealthiest families in Japan. Her maternal great-grandfather, Zenjiro Yasuda, had built a banking empire before being assassinated in 1921. Actually, when John visited her family, he saw a picture of this guy, Zenjiro Yasuda, and he said, oh, this guy was me in a past life, because he kind of resembled his face. I don't know if John had a feeling, and Yoko said, don't say that, because he was assassinated. And that's just one of the eerie things that lingers throughout the whole book. There's all these kinds of premonitions and just strange um, things that Yoko saw that were coming that she didn't really understand the prediction at the time. But growing up with wealth created a lonely existence for young Yoko, who was an only child for several years until she gained a younger brother, Keske, and sister, Setsuko. She was having her own creative thoughts at the time. I'm not even sure she thought it was art. She was just having these esoteric kind of thoughts that were different from anything anyone else had and she was very misunderstood also but the expectation from her parents look they were the one of the three wealthiest families in japan at the time and you know you think of wealth as an advantageous thing for a child but for her it was pretty bad because the parents were always away and out her mother was pretty much a socialite her father was away on business she didn't even meet him until she was almost three years old she had to say good night to a picture of him every night and she was waited on by servants and had no children of her age to play with 
And these servants saw her as their superior, so they weren't really interactive with her. They kind of worshipped her in a way. They just were not hands-off, fed her her food at a gigantic table where she sat by herself. And, um, you know, it was just very, very sad. She was very lonely. So she, uh, her father was a, uh, wanted to be a pianist. He was for a time, and he was very good. But he had to give that up to marry into her mother's wealthy family. And he became a banker. Um, but he wanted his child to be a pianist. And unfortunately, in his eyes, he had a daughter. And she could tell that he was disappointed. And, and I disappointed him already just by being born a girl. And he tried, he gave, she got piano lessons all. But she decided she wanted to compose music, not play other people's music. And he, you know, the... The thought at the time was, there's no female composers. You can't do that. And um, she just drifted away from it all and just did her own work. Yoko studied piano throughout her childhood with her uncle Shunichi Ono's Russian wife, Anna Dubnova. Anna and her sister Varvara, musical and visual artists respectively, who arrived in Japan in the early 1920s fleeing the Russian Revolution, were mentors and role models for Yoko. Right, right. They married into her family, and they were renowned uh, violinist and painter. And they were influential on, you know, Russian influence in Japan at the time. And the violinist uh, taught um, young children to play um, when it was, at the time, you know, children weren't taught such an instrument, you know. And it was very revolutionary and they're very re- renowned today. There's exhibi- exhibitions of their work, and yeah, her artists are incredible. Unlike baby John Lennon, Yoko experienced the Second World War as an adolescent. The American bombing raids on Tokyo that started around her 12th birthday were traumatic for Yoko and her siblings, who were sent away from the city to the safer district of Nagano with a servant who abandoned them. Yoko, as the eldest, was left to fend for herself and her younger siblings. When Japan surrendered in August, Yoko's family was reunited. Interestingly, Yoko's uncle, Toshikazu Kasi, was among the Japanese delegation aboard the USS Missouri on the 2nd of September 1945 to sign the official surrender documentation. The Ono family relocated to Scarsdale, New York in 1952 when Yoko's father was involved in setting up a Manhattan branch of the Bank of Tokyo. Yoko was 19. The move forced her to abandon two semesters worth of a degree in philosophy at the prestigious Gakushin University in Tokyo. Two years later, on the 21st of September, 1954, Yoko enrolled as one of 125 freshmen at Sarah Lawrence College in nearby Yonkers. She was now geographically perched on the edge of Manhattan, a city that would foster her artistic endeavors and the place she would live for the majority of her life. At Sarah Lawrence, Yoko explored the arts, taking poetry classes from Alistair Reed, acting, listening to atonal and experimental music, and writing for the school's newspaper, The Campus. In the 26th of October 1955 issue of The Campus, Yoko published a short story titled Of a Grapefruit in the World of Park. This piece became the foundation for her future conceptual work. The grapefruit became a reoccurring motif throughout her work, as well as a powerful metaphor for the hybrid that she felt she embodied coming from Japan and living in America, blending traditional Japanese and Zen Buddhist concepts with progressive modern art forms. Yeah, so she was um, not finding exactly what she wanted at Sarah Lawrence, and one of her professors, 
kind of thank God for him because he kind of put it together that he knew about the avant-garde scene in New York City with John Cage, Lamont Young. And so she, he said, you know, you should check out these people in New York. So she went there and jumped headfirst. It was through her proximity to Manhattan that in 1956, Yoko met Toshi Ichinagi, then a composition student at Juilliard School of Music. Toshi had met John Cage and been turned on to avant-garde music. Because Toshi wanted more experimental instruction than Juilliard offered, he augmented his studies by sitting in on Cage's classes at the New School for Social Research. Yoko also attended many of these seminars, and a friendship formed between mentor and pupils. And they all really hit it off because they had the same kind of ideas about music, about sound, and a different viewpoint. You know, it wasn't really a musical viewpoint. It was about sound. But then John Cage was doing more of a noise presentation or even presenting the silence in between the noise. Yoko and Toshi's shared interest in experimental music led to a quick bond and the couple eloped the same year. She wasn't really participating in a, a marriage per se. It was just coming together of two artists and Toshi used to transcribe her, her works. Unlike Yoko, Toshi did not come from a wealthy family and Yoko's parents did not approve of the marriage. As a result... Yoko dropped out of Sarah Lawrence and was cut off from her parents' financial support. To make ends meet for the next few years, Yoko did odd jobs such as demonstrating Japanese arts, working as a typist for the Japan Society, and in 1960, working for Jonas Mikas magazine, Film Culture. In fact, until 1966, Yoko often supported herself by teaching origami, calligraphy, Japanese song and poetry workshops as far afield as Chicago. Sometimes, in traditional Japanese dress. There is, for example, a radio broadcast recording from the 28th of September 1965 that amazingly survives of the last of a four-part series Yoko recorded for New York's WBAI radio in conversation with Anne McMillan about contemporary Japanese culture and music. Japanese transitions seen through songs for unaccompanied voice with Yoko Ono. And today, Yoko, you're going to cover the Showa period. Showa period, yes. Showa period mm. starts uh, 1925, and it's still continuing. Uh, this year's uh, Showa, uh, naturally, 40, I think. The uh, emperor we have now uh, is not uh, called Showa emperor. Uh, usually, uh, they will be called by the pe- period of of uh, their reign after they die. In other words, a Meiji period is uh, uh, a Meiji emperor became Meiji emperor after the Meiji era was over. You see, so now we're calling Showa period. This period. Um, well, since this is the last of the series, first I'd like to say that uh, the songs that I'm selecting. Uh, in uh, these four series that we went through, um, 
are just very, very small part of Japanese songs. For an accompanied voice. For an accompanied voice. And so that uh, this is just uh, an opening to a huge mine of beautiful, beautiful songs. So that I wish people will pick it up from here and uh, uh, make their own studies on Japanese songs. Watashi Jurokku Manishu Musume Haru Yosan Natsu Yuki Dokeni In the late 1950s, newlyweds Yoko and Toshi immersed themselves in the burgeoning experimental and avant-garde art and music scene of New York. When, in October 1960, Yoko discovered that an unused loft was available to rent at 112 Chambers Street for $50 a month, she dreamed up a way to bring together the experimental community she was exploring and give them a stage. Thus, from December 1960 to June 1961, Yoko and fellow artist Lamont Young produced a series of evenings where featured artists could present new works and ideas to their peers. The programs included both visual art and performance pieces, blurring distinctions between mediums. The idea was revolutionary. What later became known as the Fluxus art movement grew directly out of this Chamber Street loft series. George Machunis, who named the movement, supported and produced events throughout the city and became its central figure, was so inspired by what Yoko and Lamont Young had created, he picked up where they left off. Toshi Ichinagi was one of the featured artists on the 7th and 8th of January, 1961. Although Yoko was never a featured artist and did not yet have a program of her own work, she participated in other work and most importantly provided the space. And uh, that was groundbreaking. That was like the blueprint for like Meltdown Festival, <laughs> curating these artists to play. Now there was no real audience. I mean, all artists came to hear each other and there were about 200 people there at any given time. And they were all, you know, from painters, you know, they had Isamo Nokuchi, they had Duchamp, they had, you know, Peggy Guggenheim, the museum. And it was just an amazing time in the city and she made that all happen. The Chamber Street Loft series also marked the first time that Yoko presented her instruction-based paintings, such as Painting to be Stepped on, or Shadow Painting. On the 3rd of April, in the midst of the Chamber Street Loft series, Yoko was one of three headline artists, along with her husband and Toshiro Maiozumi, who presented an evening of contemporary Japanese music and poetry at the Village Gate in Greenwich Village. Yoko performed a new adaptation of her college short story of a grapefruit in the world of Park with a live soundtrack provided by Ichinagi, David Tudor, and others. This event was reviewed in the next day's issue of the New York Times. While Yoko's work was mentioned alongside her husband and Mayozumi's, the photo of the three that accompanied the article cropped Yoko out entirely. This was an early sign of the male-dominated art scene that Yoko would have to fight against for many years to come. Although her peers accepted her as an equal, the critics would not. At the end of July 1961, George Machunis produced Yoko's first exhibition at the AG Gallery on Madison Avenue. Which was funny because uh, it was about to close. He couldn't pay the rent and the electricity was being shut off. So um, 
they'd open it early in the day so people could come and she'd show each person each work and explain it. And then at night, <laughs> they had to close because it was shut down. This was an expanded collection of the instruction paintings that Yoko had been developing during the Chamber Street Loft series. Then, on the 24th of November, Yoko debuted her first full-blown performance evening at the Carnegie Recital Hall. Her program consisted of various works, including Of a Grapefruit in the World of Park and assistance from a large pool of her contemporaries. This was not the same hall in which the Beatles performed to nearly 6,000 people three years later during their first American visit, but the smaller recital hall that seated a more modest 299. But it didn't matter. In the next day's New York Times Review, journalist Alan Rick described the hall as packed. He also mused, Whether or not time will prove Miss Ono a master of musical expressiveness, there can be no denying her skill at concocting titles. Impresario Norman Seaman, who sponsored the evening, remained a friend and ally to Yoko, attending the Lennon's Montreal bed-in on the 31st of May, 1969, and taking part in the recording of Give Peace a Chance. Yoko had now arrived as an artist in her own right with a sellout program at the prestigious Carnegie Recital Hall. But this occurred at the same time that the original Fluxus community was splintering, and pop art was beginning to replace avant-garde as the new vogue of the underground. Looking to pursue opportunities in his home country, Toshi Ichiyanagi had not been at Carnegie Hall to support his wife's concert, because he had already returned to Japan. On the 3rd of March, 1962, Yoko followed suit with the intention of staging a similar concert in Tokyo and then returning after two weeks. Actually, she would stay more than two years until September 1964. Inspired by her Carnegie performance, Yoko staged a more ambitious performance and exhibition at the Sugetsu Arts Center in Tokyo on the 24th of May, 1962. As in New York, where Yoko was assisted by her fellow community of artists, so her performance in Tokyo featured participation from the Japanese community of experimental artists that Toshi was now established in. A month later, the July 1962 issue of Japan's Geijutsu Shinjo magazine carried a review of her show titled Stumbling Frontline, Yoko Ono's Avant-Garde Show, in which American expat journalist Donald Ritchie attacked Yoko's art for being amateur, unoriginal, and that her ideas were stolen from John Cage. Toshi jumped to Yoko's defense, publishing his own reply article in the following month's issue, titled Voice of the Most Avant-Garde, Objection to Donald Ritchie. He said, you know, I wish critics would look upon... Um, artists work as more, well, her work as more metaphysical. That's what you're not understanding, you know. Despite Toshi's support, their marriage had run its course and had always been a coming together of artists more than a deep romantic love. The review upset Yoko's confidence, and she also worried that she might negatively impact Toshi's reputation in Japan. While the critics couldn't understand her art, her peers respected her ideas. So when John Cage and David Tador arrived at Haneda Airport on the 30th of September, they invited Yoko and Toshi to accompany and participate in their joint seven-date tour of Japan until the end of October. Yoko's participation included singing Cage's piece, Aria, and lying across the open piano during Cage's music walk. Yoko felt increasingly isolated and alone as the only woman in a scene dominated by male artists, male audiences, and male critics. It was the men who were repeatedly treated as serious artists, while another male Japanese critic suggested that, as a woman, 
she sit pretty and silent. Despondent, Yoko attempted suicide in late October or early November, and her family admitted her to a psychiatric hospital. Coincidentally, a young American man who had come to Tokyo in search of Yoko entered the story around this time and tracked her down to the hospital. Yoko's works Touch Poem No. 5 and The Chair No. 1 had been included in Lamont Young and Jackson Maclow's An Anthology book, published in 1962. It was in this anthology that Anthony Cox first discovered Yoko Ono. It's difficult to find much information about this time in Yoko's life and the order of events is unclear. But within the space of a month, Tony, as he was known, managed to find Yoko, get her released from hospital, and they attempted to marry on the 28th of November. That is, they got married, but Yoko was not yet legally divorced from Toshi. Yoko and Tony's marriage was annulled three months later, and once Yoko and Toshi formally divorced, they remarried on the 11th of June. By this time, Yoko was seven months pregnant. When their daughter Kyoko Chan Cox was born on the 8th of August, Tony became her main carer. That was part of something that Yoko felt very strongly about, said Cox in 1986. That if she had kids, the husband should help take care of them. I agreed to it before the marriage. While Yoko had been somewhat overshadowed by Toshi Ichinagi's reputation and musical expertise, her dynamic with Tony was the opposite. Later 1966-67 articles about the couple in the British press equally described him as her manager or her husband. From the beginning, he helped make her artistic visions become reality and promoted them to reach as wide an audience as possible. He was a hustler. Her hustler. Well, Toshi was a brainy composer, you know, all about, you know, notation and how far he could take things in music. But Anthony was kind of like a hysterical personality. He was like, really over the top and he was a promoter which is kind of what she needed because she was very quiet and just about doing her thing she was never demonstrative everything she did was with a whisper or you know she's all about the esoteric nature of things and he was just a, a promoter figure to her very different from he didn't have his own art he did have a few pieces with his name on it um but he was basically her supporter and thank Thank God for him. He got he got her going again, and they they really did more. They did more in Tokyo, but mostly in New York. Yoko took the months after Kyoko's birth to focus on her art and develop what would become the defining works of her career. One big project that she put together through 1963 and the early part of 1964 was a book of her haiku-like instruction pieces or event scores. The book's title naturally was Grapefruit. She self-published 500 copies on the 4th of July, chosen as a symbolic day of liberation. With a plain, all-white cover and only the title written on the front, the square book bears a striking resemblance to the Beatles' double album from four years later. It's wonderful, and people are really appreciating it now. I mean, it was the time that came out in 64, 1964. She had 500 printed, and... Um, 
those are going for like $10,000 now if you can find one and they're all kind of damaged and messed up. And then uh, Museum of Modern Art, when, when they had her exhibition there in 2015, they recreated the original in a, in a slipcase and they only printed 500 and she signed 50 of them and I've got one, thank God. Um, but that was, and then it came out in 71 in paperback. Um, well, first in hardcover in England and then paperback, two versions in paper. So yeah, it's really popular now. The book is divided into five sections, music, painting, event, poetry, and object. Yoko had already physically produced or performed some of the conceptual works described in the book, such as painting to be stepped on. But others were ideas for future works or thought-provoking concepts that could not be physically manifested. It's basically the blueprint for all of her art. It's just these instructional pieces, you know, um, and it's great because there's a lot of things in there that could never be built, you know, they're just imaginary and you, you can get there in your mind or you can get there physically like the, the she has in there. She has a little sales list and one of it is, is a, a, a lighthouse where, you know, the house is made entirely of light depending on the angle of the sun. And that's one of the first things John said to her when they first had their first time together. And he said, you know, could you build this in my garden? And she said, well, it's conceptual. And she didn't think about it. And then years later, in 2007, she made the Imagine Peace Tower in Iceland, which is just two towers of light that go up endlessly. And it's lit every year on his birthday, October 9th, until his death day, December 8th. So there's another thing that became real. Many of the entries are titled Something Peace, that is P-I-E-C-E. When John and Yoko collaborated on similar events in 1968 and 69, these became P-E-A-C-E, as in the world peace they were advocating for. To me, that wordplay has John's fingerprints all over it. It's a simple change, but not one that Yoko had thought of before, even though she and Tony were already advocating for peace in 66 and 67. Similar play on words turned a be-in into a bed-in. Next. Starting on the 20th of July, Yoko and Tony produced a three-day event in Kyoto, where Yoko publicly premiered two of her most iconic performance works at the Yomichi Concert Hall, Cut Piece and Bag Piece. These are Yoko's most enduring pieces, and it is probably because they are her first truly original works. In later editions of Grapefruit, Cut Piece was described as following. It is usually performed by Yoko Ono coming on the stage and in a sitting position, placing a pair of scissors in front of her and asking the audience to come up on the stage, one by one, and cut a portion of her clothing, anywhere they like, and take it. The performer, however, does not have to be a woman. Although Yoko did not originally have a feminist agenda in mind when she created Cut Piece, part of its endurance comes from the questions it raises about objectification and the violation of a woman's personal space. Yoko's original intention was to cause the audience to question how the experience made them feel. By participating in Cut Piece, the audience is complicit in acts of voyeurism and destruction. Yoko would only perform Cut Piece about a half a dozen times in her life, but other female and male artists have continued to recreate the event. With Cut Piece, Yoko took the Japanese critic's suggestion to sit still and look pretty, literally, and turned it into her art. 
Once again, the critics did not understand Yoko's concept, and the Japanese press sensationalized cut piece as a striptease. Yoko also took this in stride, and before returning to New York with Tony and Kyoko, subtitled her 11th of August farewell concert at the Sugetsu Art Center, a striptease show. Bagpiece also challenged audiences' perception of performance art. The concept is that two people, could be mixed gender or same gender, take the stage, get into a large black bag, remove their clothes, redress, and exit the bag. But as the audience, we don't really know what is happening in the bag. What we cannot see invites our imaginations to fill in the blank. In New York in early 1966, Yoko and Tony further developed this into an art installation called The Stone as part of a multimedia exhibition. In this participatory event, attendees were invited to remove their shoes, and optionally their clothes, and climb inside a bag for as long as they wanted. The resulting human lumps resembled large stones. Yoko continued to use her bag concept on stage during concerts, such as at the 1969 Toronto Rock and Roll Revival Festival with the Plastic Ono Band. And she and John developed bag piece into what they called bagism. At a press conference in Vienna on the 1st of April 1969, John and Yoko, fresh from their first bed in, faced the press inside a large white bag to promote what they called total communication. Any questions, please? <laughs> Would you come out? No. Why not? Because this is a bag event. Total communication. What is total communication? An invention of John Lennon, Yoko Ono, or is it? No, no, it exists somewhere showing you uh, one, one example of whereby. Don't you feel very hot then? It's not too hot yet, thank you. If you could change. You don't like any drink? No, thank you. So if we have something to say, or anybody has something to say, They can communicate from one room to another and not confuse you with what color your skin is or how many, uh, how long your hair's grown or how many pimples you've got. How long is your hair now? Aha, uh -huh, you have to guess. <laughs> it's, it's not important. It's only what I say that uh, we're here for. Are you going to come out of that bag? Uh, not during this press conference, no. <laughs> Back in New York in early 1965, Yoko returned to Carnegie Recital Hall to showcase her latest works, including cut piece and bag piece. Once again, the event got coverage in the New York Times, and this time was filmed by Albert and David Maisels. These were the same Maisels brothers who had documented the Beatles' first U.S. visit the previous year. The New York scene had changed in the two and a half years that Yoko had been away, and pop art was firmly established as the dominant underground movement with artists like Andy Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein at its forefront. On the fringe, however, George Machunas' Fluxus movement had been revived in the spring of 1964. In 1965 and 1966, Yoko participated in and contributed to several Flux Fest and Flux Orchestra events, and through Flux Film began experimenting with filmmaking. Throughout her career, Yoko has experimented with many different mediums to express her concepts such as painting, drawing, written word, sound collage, and music, and film was another means of expression. Tony Cox also had some experience with film. A short film about an army football game he made with two others won first prize in a contest at the 1959 Venice Film Festival. Yoko and Tony's directorial debut was of a wobbly walk through a snowstorm appropriately titled Film No. 1 and subtitled A Walk to the Taj Mahal. 
When George Machunas hired a high-speed camera for Flux Film later in the year, Yoko and other Flux's artists made several experimental short films. It was Yoko and Tony's four, subtitled Bottoms, that would develop into her most remembered film. The first version, lasting 5 minutes and 15 seconds, was filmed in late 1965 and featured the bare bottoms of 14 participants, including Yoko and Tony. The other 12 were friends and fellow Fluxus artists. The short film was screened in Manhattan on the 6th of February 1966, but did not make much of a splash outside of the Fluxus circle. It would not be until the following year, when Yoko and Tony produced a longer version in London, that they made a huge splash and received international media coverage. Life and events in New York would have likely continued for the remainder of the 60s, but in the summer of 1966, Yoko met Mario Amaya, the editor of London's Art and Artists Journal. Yoko made a strong and lasting impression on Amaya. Yoko herself did not really understand his fascination with her, saying two years later, He's a fan, I guess. I don't know what it is. He's terribly interested in me and all that. When, in September 1966, Gustav Metzger organized the Destruction in Art Symposium in London, Amaya sponsored Yoko to attend and participate. Yoko, Tony, and Kyoko left New York by boat on the 1st of September and arrived to London in time to speak on a panel during the final day of the symposium on 11th of September. Photos of her from this day show Yoko wearing a bucket hat, the rim casting a shadow over her eyes. It is possible she came straight off the train from Southampton to the Africa Center in Covent Garden. That's when actually Pete Townsend notices her. And, you know, the destruction in art. They also, actually, um, Metzger wanted her there all along. But some of the other artists were saying, well, she's not destructive. You know, they were breaking things with hammers. They were destroying basically a lot of things. And, um, well, he said, I think she breaks down things in her own way. So she, what she, one of the things there was whisper piece where, you know, the message kind of gets diluted or broken down by the time it reaches the last person. And, um, but he, you know, he's, Pete Townsend saw her as pretty much a revolutionary and he loved how she shook things up. Although the three-day destruction in art symposium, abbreviated as DS, was over, surrounding events, happenings, and performances by the participating array of international artists continued to the end of the month. Diaz presented two evenings with Yoko Ono at the Africa Center on the 28th and 29th of September. Yoko performed a selection of her works, including two of the last public performances of Cut Piece. In fact, Yoko would not perform Cut Piece again until 2003, when, as a 70-year-old, she resurrected it in Paris as a protest against ageism, racism, sexism, and violence. One of the evenings was filmed by British Pathé, and Yoko succeeded in getting the attention of the London underground art world. Yoko and Tony had intended to return to New York after the month, but Yoko's work found a resonance in London that she hadn't felt as strongly in Tokyo or New York. As she had in Tokyo with High Red Center, and in New York with Fluxus, Yoko connected with the London underground art community. This brought her into the orbit of people like John Dunbar at the Indica Gallery, Barry Miles and his International Times underground newspaper, experimental music groups such as The Soft Machine, and the like. Off the back of her performances, and with the support of Mario Amaya, Yoko was offered an exhibition at the Indica Gallery in November. Meanwhile, 
Yoko joined the soft machine and performed her touch piece during the group's set at the launch party for the International Times at the Roundhouse on the 15th of October. Also attending this event was Paul McCartney. Paul had been introduced to John Dunbar and Barry Miles through his girlfriend Jane Asher's brother Peter and had been interested in the underground scene since relocating to London from Liverpool in 1963. By this stage, Paul had made tape loops and avant-garde recordings with beat writer William Burroughs, put in manual labor, creative ideas, and invested money to launch Indica Bookshop and Gallery in Mason's Yard, made his own experimental films, and been turned on to far-out composers such as Karl-Heinz Stockhausen and Luciano Berrio. Paul was connected to the heart of the underground scene, and so it was natural that he of all the Beatles would cross paths with Yoko first. Paul and Yoko also shared common interests, such as their love of surrealist Belgian painter René Magritte. Magritte's frequent use of apples in his paintings separately inspired Yoko's art piece titled Apple, a green apple placed on a plexiglass pedestal, and the name and logo of the Beatles company. Yeah, but they they had their ups and downs, but Yoko always said that, you know, she understood that she and Paul were kind of in the same position for like 40 years, you know, uh, what with through the ups and downs and that they felt the same amount of pain. And she's like, you know, people think that we're so privileged that we we are beyond pain and suffering, but we're not. And she was very sympathetic to Paul um, in that regard. And now, you know, it's kind of come out the other end. Paul is really um, speaking wonderfully about her. Um, look, they they had the same love for the same person in their life, right? They they were joined together by John and um, Paul. Actually, there's quotes from him in the book saying that he really only got to know Yoko better after John's passing. Around the time that Paul and Yoko crossed paths at the International Times launch, Yoko also approached Paul about contributing original handwritten lyric sheets to a book her friend John Cage was compiling. In Many Years From Now, Barry Miles claims it was for Cage's 50th birthday, a story Paul repeated in the Beatles anthology. But Cage had already turned 54 on the 5th of September. Released in 1969, Cage's book was titled Notations and included many manuscripts, including Yoko's Beat Piece, one of nine concert pieces she gave to him, a work by Yoko's first husband, Toshi Ichinagi, and the psychedelically painted lyrics of the Beatles' The Word. But John Cage and Yoko did not get that lyric sheet from Paul. In Jonathan Green's 1988 book, Days in the Life, Voices from the English Underground, Paul remembered, Yoko showed up at my house and said, Have you got any original manuscripts? She was doing a thing for John Cage in New York. So I was interested. I knew of him through Miles and various other people like Dunbar. I didn't want to give her one because I keep them, and in the end I wasn't really too forthcoming. I just didn't want to give her one. Quite simple. So I said, I've got this friend who might be able to interest you. Maybe if I hadn't done that, there might not have been this sort of huge period for them. Who knows? So then she went round to John. I think that was before the meeting in Indica, which is the great story. I'm not sure. It might have been there, she said. You're the guy Paul told me to come and see. I'm not sure. I certainly do know that I met her before John as part of my interests. In the end, Yoko acquired from John Lennon the lyric sheets for The Word, Eleanor Rigby, I'm Only Sleeping, Good Day Sunshine, For No One, Yellow Submarine, and Andrew Bird Can Sing. 
These manuscripts, along with the rest of Cage's notations collection, are now housed at Northwestern University. But before Yoko was able to locate John to ask him for the lyrics, he found her. End of part one. Intermission. Thank you for listening. Make sure to come back next week for the second part of this portrait of Yoko Ono. In the meantime, you can email me with thoughts and suggestions to gimmesometruthpod at gmail.com or find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at gimmesometruthpod. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a future episode. Bye.